0: This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I just returned from a trip to the United States and Canada organizing some Doreno Young Professional chapters for the Vision Movement. Uh, if you're interested in bringing our work to your community in North America or even other parts of the diaspora, uh, you can contact us at visionmovement.org or visionmag.org just by going to the menu bar up top Uh, and of course if you're interested in supporting our work you can go to either those websites visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and click donate on the menu bar up top Uh, this show uh, and all of our programs are really funded by you by listeners by participants by graduates uh, by those who benefit from our work so if you'd like to benefit from our work please be in touch and if you'd like to support our work please be in touch. That being said, we have a very uh, exciting conversation planned for this episode. Uh, joining me on the show is Yermiao Danzig. Uh, he is the Director of Education for the Cherut Movement, the Freedom Movement. He's a committee member of Habait and he's a social media influencer uh, in his own right, putting out a lot of messages that I would say are very vision movement adjacent if not coming directly from the vision movement. Yir welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Well, uh, before we get into the meat of the conversation, uh, can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself, where you come from, what you've done, your journey, and uh, what you see to be uh, most important in the Jewish liberation struggle today?
1: So, I grew up in a family that was uh, quite uh, explicitly uh, Zionist uh, in our posture, but a little bit unorthodox in the way that we understood our identity. Uh, my father's family uh, was many, many generations in the land uh, prior to the Zionist movement. Um, what is often called in Hebrew as the Yeshuvah ishan, the old uh, Jewish community. Um, and what uh, most uh, Palestinians and academics refer to as Palestinian Jews. Uh, And we grew up in a home in which uh, I heard from my grandfather uh, Palestinian Arabic in the house, alongside Hebrew as well as Palestinian Yiddish, which is uh, a language that doesn't exist anymore. Um, So, you know, we grew up very proud of of our Jewish identity uh, and very committed to the revolution Uh, that was and that is uh, Zionism, but also with a a very distinct understanding of what our relationship is to the land. Um, And that's something that informed my own activism uh, when I was uh, living in the United States uh, and arriving to college campuses um, and uh, coming to grips with what is uh, certainly a very uh, um, visceral and painful uh, fight uh, that I see between uh, family members, between cousins, but cousins in the real sense not in the kind of pejorative way that it's often uh, described. Um, and uh, my mother's family is uh, Jews from the Caribbean, uh, from Guyana. And um, so we have a uh, kind of interesting uh, banana Nusim uh, um, Sfaradi uh, identity uh, that's also uh, connected strongly with the Creole identity of the Caribbean. Um, and so all of these different things gave me a, a kind of uh, a complex understanding of, uh, of the conflict, but also in, inspired me to, uh, in my return to the homeland, um, to use these experiences and uh, informing the way that we approach uh, conflict resolution and uh, the decolonization of, uh, of Jewish identity and the, uh, the return of what it really means to be Judean in the full sense. And I think we're going to get into a little bit of that today.
0: Right. Well, you've already said a lot that uh, I'd like to address or ask you to elaborate on. Uh, for example, you mentioned uh, the revolution that was and is Zionism. Uh, would you say that Zionism as an ideology is still relevant? Or would you say that Zionism is a stage? Like, I I would look at Zionism as one of many stages of Jewish liberation, something that existed between the 1880s, 1890s, and 1967. And I would argue that Zionism is a very specific ideology or a very specific set of ideological tendencies that aspired to achieve some very specific goals, for the most part achieved uh, some of them, plus maybe a few that it did not intentionally set out to achieve, uh, but that from the, time, uh, from the time that we liberated Jerusalem, from the time we liberated Zion in the Six-Day War in 1967, Zionism has essentially been over. Uh, again, looking at Zionism as like the movement of Mashiach Ben Yosef, that's essentially done everything uh, that it could possibly do, like finished its revolutionary role, uh, which means that, from my perspective at least, Zionism, post its revolutionary function, has this danger of sliding back towards its own assimilationist impulse and trying to turn the state of Israel into an Am into like a nation like every other nation. I, I think that um, there's a very interesting dialectical relationship between the Haskalah, between the Jewish enlightenment and Zionism in that on the one hand, Zionism was only made possible by the Haskalah, while on the other hand, zionism is very much a rejection of the Haskalah, at least in terms of how the Haskalah attempted to redefine jewish identity as not a uh, national or or peoplehood identity and and just a religious identity so we could better fit in to societies like france and germany etc so i think that zionism has this like interesting dialectical relationship with the jewish enlightenment which means it possesses within it this uh, assimilationist impulse that runs the risk of backsliding towards wanting to be like the other nations, specifically the most dominant, and that what we need is a post-Zionist Jewish liberation movement that can protect Zionism's positive achievements while addressing and cleaning up its mess, meaning really trying to use the conditions created by Zionism's revolutionary success to identify and achieve the next goals of Jewish history. Uh, So I'm just curious if you would agree with that or if you would say, no, we're still Zionist and Zionism still has a revolutionary role to play.
1: So I think that uh, when most Zionists, myself included, uh, use the term Zionism, we're identifying with a very broad definition of the term, right? The, the belief in the right of the Jewish people, to self-determination in Zion, right? So we identify more with the, the term Zion, the, the Zion aspect of it, than the Ut or the Ism aspect of the term. Um, And that's something which I think is uh, rooted in something which is much older than the contemporary modern Zionist movement. And so as a result of that, I think we need to keep in mind that every single uh, successful revolutionary movement in Jewish history uh, has carried on with us past the specific context in which it arose. Um, You know, if we look at, for example, uh, Ezra, uh his movement to you know to return to zion and to have a resurgence of the jewish people in zion right uh, obviously the specific movement that he led um was dependent on the specific circumstances of that time period what was going on in babylonian uh, society and the wants and needs of the jewish people uh, of that time period um but their accomplishments and what they did for good and for bad uh, is part of the legacy of what continued to be part of Jewish identity uh, long after that specific movement. So likewise I think the modern Zionist movement uh, in many similar ways is uh, kind of dependent on that very specific uh, number of circumstances in which the movement arose but also it's it's the continuation of something which is much older than that. Um, so whether or not uh, we've come to this the point in which we need a new Jewish movement to kind of update uh, the software that is the the revolution of Jewish history. Um, I'm not sure if it's clear to us yet, because in many ways the important accomplishments of modern Zionism um, have been accomplished, um, and have and is something which we can see as evident in in Israeli society today. In many ways, it's not right. Like I think there's still a significant portion of the Jewish people, both in the land of Israel and in the diaspora would still need to benefit from the revolution that was Zionism. They still need to go through the process of the kind of fundamental liberations that many Israelis take for granted, but for many Jews in the diaspora, it's still very foreign to them. So I think it really depends on, on where we're looking. Um, for example, I do a lot of work with um, the, uh, the Igbo Hebrew community in Nigeria and in many ways the fundamental and basic achievements uh, that Zionism gave to uh, the majority of the Jewish people have still not reached that corner of our diaspora yet. So I think uh, for the chapter in which uh, we are writing right now in the land of Israel, we definitely need uh, an update. Um, And that might mean repurposing some of the main tenets of Zionism into something which is unique to the challenges that face us now. But I think for many other parts of even our society here, but especially in the diaspora, Uh, the basic achievements of Zionism uh, still need to be labored uh, for.
0: So that's very interesting. I just want to try to clarify for listeners, because I know that this conversation can be very confusing for a lot of people. You're saying a couple things. One, you're saying that Zionism, as I'm defining it, as this very specific movement that's really a link in the chain of Jewish liberation movements, that's like one one phase of our revolution um, that existed from, you know, the late 19th century until 1967, you're saying that that is still relevant to a lot of diaspora Jewish communities that have not yet reaped the benefits of that stage of our liberation. Uh, But you're also saying, and and I think this is kind of like uh, included within the term modern Zionism. Whenever you say modern Zionism, you're inferring that there's an ancient Zionism, but The ancient Zionism you speak about never self-identified as Zionism, meaning you're being somewhat anachronistic. You're taking a modern term and applying it to people who never heard that word, never self-identified by it, um, but were fighting for something that you can see as similar, if not identical, to what the Zionists saw themselves as fighting for.
1: Yeah, I think that's an accurate description of, uh, of what I'm doing. Uh, I just think that it's important that we remember that um, we, the Jewish people, suffer in general from this constant uh, a tendency to use anachronisms, right? Because we have to remember that Judaism, right, is not a, a term that our ancestors identified with. Um, uh, this um, this need to, to define everything is very much, I would say, a product of euro modernity right it's part of this kind of this enlightenment desire to kind of have everything define everything scientifically um in order so that we can more fundamentally understand them and that we can come to a a better understanding of our reality uh you know and create better uh means of of living um and obviously there's something that's very true about that but there's a reason why also our ancestors uh, left some things undefined right because of their Um, amorphous nature because of the need uh, to define every single day as a brand new reality which is something which is very central to the hebrew way of looking at the world Um, so yeah judaism itself is a uh, anachronistic description of what our ancestors uh, did Um, but it's also useful right it's useful to kind of look at the specific uh, development of our people in a very specific uh, period of time and say okay this is the culture the identity uh, the practices of our ancestors at this point um and that was surrounded around the uh, the civilization and the culture that was concentrated in judea and we described that as judaism likewise while our ancestors definitely went to recognize the word zionism they definitely uh recognized the word sion or zion right and so i think we need to make sure that in looking for the next uh ideology to advance our history to the next level Uh, we need to make sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the important accomplishments of zionism and just to kind of make it concrete for a lot of the the listeners um as to what aspects of the basic accomplishments of zionism still have to reach much of our diaspora for example the hebrew language right one of the first things we talk about in terms of the ways in which uh the uh zionist establishment the land of israel was able to revolutionize uh, jewish life was in the the revival and the institutionalization of the hebrew language um you know the america which or the united states which is the largest uh jewish community which is certainly analogous to what the babylonian jewish community was uh in our previous uh iterations of our civilization um hebrew language is something which very few people speak and are illiterate in, and that's uh And that's something which we need to look to the accomplishments of the Zionist movement in the land of Israel and see how we can uh, employ some of these policies in diaspora in order to strengthen our people.
0: Right, you're just taking this conversation deeper and deeper and deeper, which is great. Um, I agree with you that Judaism is a relatively modern social construct. Uh, I guess I take the opposite approach though. I I say let's not use it, you know. I I tend to push back against the term Judaism. I don't like it. Uh, I think the term Judaism is really part of our colonization and part of us trying to uh, recreate our own identity as a religious one, as opposed to what we were before the Haskalah, uh, which was essentially Palestinian refugees. You know, we spent roughly 1,700 years as refugees, as communities in exile, living isolated from the host populations in the lands that we were, organizing our communities according to portable versions of the civilization we had left behind that was essentially destroyed by the Romans, uh, knowing that we were going to go home, knowing that eventually we will go home and we will unpack this portable version of our civilization and bring it back to life on a real national level so that we could fulfill our historic mission. Of being a mamlechet koanim, the goikadosh, being like a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, being like a living, breathing nation on the stage of history that influences humanity through the very way we organize ourselves, through the way we organize our society, showing that kedusha, that holiness can be expressed not only in a yeshiva and in a synagogue, but also in an army, also in a government, also in a judicial system, also in a sanitation system and a healthcare system and a transportation system to show that every facet of national identity and every corner of our society can manifest Kiddusha, can express Kiddusha through expressing the divine ideal in every sphere of human behavior, uh, in every sphere of national identity. And I think that's something we always knew we would come back to our land in order to do. Uh, until the Haskalah, when we started to redefine ourselves as Germans with a Jewish religion, Frenchmen with a Jewish religion. And that's where Judaism really comes in. And it was, of course, only shortly after that, that we decided to copy our Christian neighbors and uh, come up with all these denominations like Orthodox and Reform, etc. Um, but but again, these are all layers of our colonization. So I, I do think it's helpful to get away from terms like Judaism. I don't think our ancestors would have understood that term. Uh, Zionism also, I think it's something our ancestors wouldn't have understood. I think it's a little problematic to call like Yudha Maccabi or Rabbi Akiva uh, a Zionist because I'm not sure that they would have connected to the stated goals of Zionism. They might have appreciated what Zionism ultimately accomplished. They might have appreciated what the creator and author of history was accomplishing through Zionism. Uh, but I'm not sure that Yuda Maccabi would have been able to really get on board with any of the Zionist tendencies. I actually think it's more likely that somebody like Yuda Maccabi or somebody like Rabbi Akiva would have been more comfortable either in the Lechi, the Lochamech Herut Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, or the Rav Kuk camp, both of which, even during the Zionist period, were very clear about the fact that we are not Zionists, like we are something else. You know, Lehi said, you know, we are not Zionists. We are an indigenous people's liberation movement. Zionism is Chaim Weizmann. Zionism is Zev Jabotinsky. Zionism is some philanthropic colonial project that's working with the British Empire. We're not that. Or Rav Cook said, uh, you know, Zionism is too shallow an ideology to sustain a living nation, let alone revive a dead one. Uh, but at the same time, Rofkook saw that the Creator is doing something through the Zionists, and that should be supported, even if we ourselves aren't going to identify as Zionists. So I, I think if that was true for the Zionist period, it should be even more true for the post-Zionist period. And I think that what's interesting to me uh, about both the Lechi and Rofkook is that they had a set of ideas that are still relevant to our current situation. Whereas I think all of the different Zionist thinkers had ideas that were extremely relevant to their conditions or the conditions of the Jewish people, especially in Europe a hundred years ago, but are not necessarily relevant to where we are today.
1: So the the last part uh, is is a little bit harder for me to identify, particularly in light of the increased violence that uh, Jews are facing and some of the indifference of people and what we would call the kind of the Israeli uh, center-left, uh, in terms of how we should be responding to those things. So I say, for example, the contributions of Zev Zaptinsky to uh, really reviving what we would describe uh, as like a Hebrew uh, militancy or uh, physical strength. These are things that are, I think, in- increasingly relevant. Um, even more so than they were in the founding uh, years of the state of Israel in which these things were kind of taken as uh, they were taken for granted. Um, I think essentially what I'm saying is that I agree with the idea of us needing to unpack Judaism and that in order to be able to unpack Judaism effectively in a matter which effectively decolonized Judaism, And returns it back to a more aboriginal understanding of Hebrew identity is first to fundamentally understand what it is that Judaism was or or what it was before it became Judaism, right? There was a civilization before it became kind of uh, caricatured as a religion. Uh, Likewise, I'm saying we should unpack Zionism, right? That Zionism is also this suitcase, um, which includes a lot of different ideas, some of them more contemporary and some of them more ancient. Uh, and in, in unpacking that suitcase, we we need to fundamentally understand what it was that uh, Rebbe Akiva was fighting for, what Bar Kochva was fighting for, what uh, Shimon Shoshmonai uh, was fighting for, and see what they have in common with some of the more contemporary uh, Jewish revolutionaries. Uh, and in that, finding out what it is that we need to be doing right now and in this generation. Um, and the reason why I'm 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 fighting to kind of preserve some aspects of these terms and some aspects of these ideologies in terms of the ideas and their accomplishments is my commitment to the very hebrew concept of uh Masora, right of this tradition which gets passed generation to generation um it's important for us to study the teachings of rabbi akiva uh, but in coming and understanding rabbi akiva fundamentally in terms of what it was that he was fighting for who he was his ideas and his ideology One of the fundamental assumptions of our civilization is that we have to access that most effectively through the tradition we get handed down generation to generation. Then I need to go through a rough cook, I need to go through a Mahalal uh, of Prague in order to get back to that line and understand it fully uh, and effectively so. So I think there are ideas within the modern Zionist movement which we need to continue to study, continue to understand and even implement uh, when the circumstances dictate that we must but we also need to be open-minded in the sense that, okay, our labor is not done. We have more thinking to do. This generation needs new ideas, just like the generation of Rebbe Akiva needed new ideas for that generation. So I think that there, there, there is a golden uh, mean here. Um, and, we, and part of these conversations is figuring out uh, where we can take things from the accomplishments, but also build something new.
0: Right. I definitely agree that Jabotinsky's historic contribution to the development of the Jewish people was massive in terms of us understanding that we are physically capable of violence. Meaning that until Jabotinsky came along, we were, and again, this is one of the curses of Galut. This is one of the curses of exile we see in parashat B'chokotai, that in exile we will be cowards. It says so explicitly in the Torah that that is one of the curses of exile we will be cowards and we were uh, especially Ashkenazim and maybe it took a few centuries to kind of beat us into that position and beat us into seeing ourselves that way remember Ashkenazim had the unique uh, experience of spending our exile in the belly of the beast inside the civilization that had destroyed ours and was still looking to unleash its wrath on us from time to time uh, and still felt threatened by us on very deep fundamental ideological levels. Uh, And so I think that uh, ultimately we came to see ourselves as powerless. We came to see gentile aggression as akin to a natural disaster, a tidal wave, a hurricane, an earthquake. But you can't fight the earthquake. You can't make the tidal wave bleed. You can run, you can hide, you can take shelter. And that's really the way we had been conditioned to relate to Gentile aggression until people like Zev Jabotinsky came along and uh, infused us with these new ideas. Um, So so I think that is valuable. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I guess I would agree that in the diaspora that is still relevant, there are still Jews in many parts of the diaspora, including North America, who view themselves as physically inferior to their Gentile neighbors, who would normally be intimidated to get into a physical altercation even when i was growing up in new york city uh you know after 1948 after 1967 we can say in the wake of zionism success i was still growing up in an environment where to be a jew was considered a bit of a liability you know i i'm still learning to this day i'm still discovering that some of the guys i grew up with are jews because they were so closeted about it because just you know just like a woman has to work harder to get the same respect and the same pay in the workplace. In the environment I grew up in, a Jew had to be more violent to get the same respect as an Italian kid or an Irish kid or a black kid, uh, just because we were perceived um, as physically inferior and often perceived ourselves that way. Uh, So I do think that you're right in terms of Jabotinsky making a major historic uh, contribution, as I think many of the Zionist leaders did, Um, And I do think that maybe some of this is still relevant to certain diaspora communities. But I think for those of us here in the land of Israel trying to continue our revolution, we need to be scientific. I know that um, you're right. We should be connecting to the worldview of our ancestors, which doesn't necessarily uh, always require a scientific analysis of everything. Uh, But in terms of the practical steps, the mechanics of advancing our liberation and our revolution, I think we do need to be as scientific as we possibly can in order to be successful. And I think that requires a, a much deeper analysis, meaning that's where I would say the Lehi, the Stern group, was much more advanced than Zionism. Um, I think Jabotinsky, even though he made the historic contribution we both spoke about, I think that his political analysis, his, his geopolitical analysis, was very flawed to the point that until his death, Jabotinsky opposed, he opposed any armed struggle against British rule because he saw the British as our potential allies. He saw a misunderstanding, not a fundamental conflict of interests between the Jewish people and the British empire. And he believed that if we were to assert our position more aggressively or more clearly, then the British would see it as being in their interests to support our liberation. Whereas uh, Yair, Avraham Stern, took the position that no, there is a fundamental conflict of interests between the Jewish people's rebirth and the British Empire's imperialist interests. And I think that one of the reasons why Yair was able to reach conclusions that Jabotinsky wasn't is actually that Yair grew up in a Marxist-Leninist youth movement and he had those tools of analysis. And I think those tools can be very valuable um, not only 80 years ago in formulating a correct line for freeing our country from British rule, but even now in terms of understanding our position in relation to US imperialism, in terms of uh, a lot of shifts taking place in the world, and understanding how we can advance our liberation uh, within the context of the world as it exists and as it's shifting today.
1: Yeah, and I I agree with a lot of what you said right there. I think it's important for us to keep in mind that we can study from and even identify with those that came before us while vehemently disagreeing with them, right? Uh, Often, uh, you know, we just, uh, or fasting for Tisha B'Av, Um, And uh, a lot of us were remembering the story of uh, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, who on the eve of the destruction of uh, Judean civilization was going and making deals with the uh, Roman rulers at the very moment in which other Judeans were fighting to the very death uh, to protect Judean society um, and um, at all costs. So, you know, often whenever we come to uh, to B'Av, I find myself asking myself the same question. I'm going to be doing it for the rest of my life. Uh, asking myself, who would I have been on that very moment? I don't know. Right. And, and, and also asking the question, who was right? You know, we look at that period um, through the various historical writings uh, and polemics that existed uh, that we get through. Uh, Josephus, but also through the, uh, through the Talmud. Uh, and we have a very specific picture based on the ideological positions that our ancestors took. Um, and, you know, we still, obviously, we, we owe the survival of our civilization to what uh, Rabban Yochanan's Ben like Zakai did. But at the same time, I think we can uh, disagree with uh, some of the uh, methods and strategies uh, and even uh, beliefs. Um, and I think the same thing applies uh, to how we look at the, uh, the founding fathers of Zionism today. Um, I just want to uh, kind of uh, pick a bone with the, with the notion that, uh, you know, in the land, the teachings of Jabotinsky are less relevant than the diaspora. I, I, think, that's, uh, I, I think that's incorrect just because if we look at some of the most influential voices uh, advocating for a two-state solution in Israeli society today, I think much of that still stems from this diasporic, exilic uh, lack of confidence and uh, that we have and the feeling that we cannot um, use violence in order to protect ourselves, in order to survive. Um, there are very loud voices, I'm not going to mention organizations, that look at uh, the very problematic status quo uh, in Judea and Samaria in the territories um, and the day-to-day Um, abuse and sufferings of Palestinians in their ethnic conflict with us. And they come to the conclusion, if this is what we need to do to survive, then what we need to do is divide the land. And when those of us who are against divine land say, hey, we cannot survive uh, in that type of constellation in which we have basically a gigantic version of uh, the Gaza Strip over the most densely populated uh, Jewish center of the world, um, they say, okay, you know, well, it's worth it though, right? Then we'll just go to war again, knowing that that means more Jews will die. So basically, it's an internalized, okay, you know, I'd rather be a dying uh, victim that's right or righteous than a strong person that resolves uh, issues with the violence. Um, so I think that we still have a lot of work to do um, in the front of teaching Jews that, hey, if you need, if, if the decision is uh, getting hit on the other cheek, Uh, or punching the other person back, then you need to be ready to punch the other person back if it means that you get to live uh, in peace and to accomplish your goals.
0: And you don't think most Israelis have internalized that? You don't think the existence of our army and the things that it's done over the last uh, 70 odd years has been enough to show us that we're capable of using violence when we need to? Meaning I'm not talking about the politics. I think that the notion that we're capable of defending ourselves physically, that we don't need to rely on powerful Gentiles for physical defense, I think is something that for the most part we've internalized. I think where we run into trouble is on the geopolitical level, meaning there's still this notion of superpower patronage. That in order for Israel to survive as a nation state, we need to be allied to strong Gentiles. Not because we can't win a war without them, but because the ability to win a war is perceived as not enough to ensure our survival.
1: Yeah, I would say that we've internalized the message that we are capable of violence, but not that we are justified in doing so. Ah. You know, if we were to sit and have a conversation with uh, the Chashmonaim, mm-hmm. you know, the those things were inherently connected, mm-hmm. right? That we are... So we are not only capable of being strong and of fighting our enemies, but we are also justified in destroying them when they seek to destroy us. We haven't got to that point. Mm-hmm.
0: So now I, see, now I see you touching on something that I think is really crucial. The idea of our discomfort with power, meaning we have power. Again, I think you and I both agree that we have power. We're confident in our own ability to use violence. The problem is we're not comfortable with power. We haven't had power in almost 2000 years. Um, The Makkabim were very comfortable with power because they were operating in a different context and it was more familiar to them. It was more obvious to them. Uh, We, I mean, what's crazy about the Jewish people, and this is, you know, back to the historic contribution of Jabotinsky, I mean, it's kind of insane that we even needed somebody like Jabotinsky to come along and tell us what's actually obvious to every other people meaning and that's something i think the rest of the world has trouble understanding when they look at israel Uh, i think sometimes we're perceived from the outside as almost fetishizing our army and our soldiers um, because there is in addition to torah notions of the army of israel being holy or the the soldiers of israel and the martyrs of israel being holy I, i think there's this feeling that we haven't had this in 2000 years, meaning we look at our army and our soldiers with a a sort of awe and a certain gratefulness to the Kadosh Baruch Hu for returning us to a situation where we actually have an army that can hold its own. And we have young men who are able to go and fight like lions uh, and die bravely for our people in our homeland, etc. That's something that's new to us to a certain extent. I mean, we had it in ancient times, but we haven't had it in almost 2,000 years. And it's difficult for some of us, meaning some of us want to overuse power. Some of us are super uncomfortable with it and just want to drop it and go back to a situation where we didn't have power and didn't have to struggle with certain moral questions that we haven't found our way through yet. But I think ultimately the goal is not to step backwards. The goal is to move forwards. The goal is to actually learn to use power justly. And that's something that we haven't figured out yet. Meaning I think right now, even in terms of our conflict with the Palestinians, we know how to be you know you used the word abuse before i think abuse is a good word we know how to be abusive with power um we know how to be oppressive with power uh, but we don't know how to be just with power and i think that's something that we need to figure out and that would hopefully uh, square the circle between those who are at least from an outsider's perspective fetishizing jewish power and those who are really uncomfortable with jewish power
1: Yeah, I very much agree with that uh, summary of the issue. And I think kind of last line on uh, Zev Jabotinsky, um, you know, the ethics of the iron wall, which he put forward, which are often caricatured and, you know, demonized in all different types of ways by people in the uh, anti-Israel camp, um, really postulated that with great power comes great responsibility to use the, you know, the uh, phrase that was popularized by Spider-Man. Exactly. Um, and that's that, you know, we are just—we are not only capable, we are justified in defeating those that are define themselves as our enemies. But that doesn't mean, though, that we don't take responsibility for everybody else that comes into our jurisdiction. So, for example, we look at the situation, we're just coming out of another uh, round fighting in Gaza. Um, there are people that, you know, feel like, OK, we are justified in defeating Hamas, right, on the field of battle. But does that what does that say for me and for us for the day after that? Do we take responsibility for the people that live in Gaza? Right. And the answer for Jabotinsky was absolutely right. And so that's something which I think we can take as an important lesson for how we should be reimagining our policies on the ground and creating a new framework of ideas that will be able to give us uh, the tools to both be a strong nation with a strong military that is unapologetic in the way that we confront those that dedicate themselves to our destruction, but also ready to welcome with an open arm and a providing arm uh, for all of those that are willing to have a covenant with us, to have an alliance with us. Um, and that's really, I think, the, the one of the major fronts for this new chapter that we're writing.
0: Right. So I think in regards to that, I'm not sure the extent to which Jabotinsky really defined what that inclusion would look like whether it would be a tribal alliance or whether it be some kind of shared civic national identity. And I think that that's where people get confused and nervous when we talk about a one-state reality, which I think both you and I support and and Chabotinsky would have supported, you know, like a one-state reality, certainly between the river and the sea, that's inclusive of its non-Jewish populations and gives them rights. The question is, well, what does that look like? Is that some kind of like civic national identity that we all share, like Canadian, or is it some kind of tribal alliance, you know, like the children of Israel and its allies, which I think is actually the real relationship we have with the Jerusalem right now, uh, beneath all the lipstick, you know, beneath all the, oh, you're Israelis too. Because at the end of the day, I think Jerusalem, no, no, we're the Jerusalem, we're not Israelis. We are the allies of the Israelis. We are proud allies, we are strong allies. You know, we have your back, you have ours, we're living here together, benefiting together, building the country together, but we're not you and you're not us. Um, and I think that, you know, Jabotinsky, like many of the Zionists, was very much motivated or, or very much influenced, I would say, he was very much influenced by European nationalism. I would even say that the Kadosh Baruch Hu put nationalism into the world, partially for our benefit, you know, for us to be able to pick it up and use it for our liberation and to pursue our historic mission, which of course requires us to come back to our land, take possession of it and begin to rebuild Hebrew civilization. Um, And just like I think Hashem put nationalism into the world at that time, uh, partially in order to influence Zionism, I would argue that a lot of the new ideas coming into the world today whether it's critical race theory, whether it's post-colonial theory. um, That idea is not so new, but I think that some of the ideas of the last several decades are really coming into the world uh, also partially for us to be able to pick up and filter and direct towards advancing Jewish liberation. So maybe we can kind of switch gears here and start talking about what the post-colonial process can look like for the Jewish people, what it means to decolonize Jewish identity. I noticed uh, about a week ago you posted something about what decolonizing Jewish identity can look like. I really appreciated that wording because unfortunately I think some of this language uh, is often, uh, I actually don't know if it's just the nature of social media or if it's actually a lot of jews in this space not understanding what decolonization really means and using it as kind of like a corny Hasbara buzzword uh and that of course you know is frustrating to those of us who actually do understand what this is about do understand what a post-colonial process can and should look like uh and then to see it just kind of like weaponized as you know the newest Hasbara, it can, can be very frustrating uh, but sometimes i think that that's just the nature of social media and to be able to get these messages out there to a broad public of young Jews who are completely unfamiliar uh, with these ideas, maybe it's sometimes helpful to kind of sensationalize it, dumb it down, uh, and make it accessible so that more young Jews will be interested in the concept of decolonization.
1: Yeah, I think the we have to focus on the, the aspect of it becoming accessible to the masses, right? Because the nature of social media is certainly one that takes the most simple version of a message, of an idea, uh, and makes it into something which is easily uh, spread and digestible by the masses. Um, and so when uh, activists in the space started describing the Jewish people as indigenous, that's something that clicked immediately for a lot of people. It like it, it filled in some type of uh, idea that a lot of us were having trouble expressing that we just knew inherently, right? It just made sense in the context of uh, how we grew up and the identity, the complex identity of the Jewish people that seemed to lack uh, terminology to accurately describe it. Um, and so coming along with Indigenous identity is this process of decolonization, right? Because anybody that's active in other uh, spaces uh, for Indigenous rights understands that uh, these is some, this is something that comes uh, part and parcel um, with uh, decolonization. Um, and the issue has increasingly become that, okay, so what does it mean to be an Indigenous people? All right, we understand that, you know, we can in many ways uh, align with what this definition is, Uh, In some ways, no, Um, but and also what does it mean to decolonize, right? and This is something which I think uh, hasn't been fully fleshed out because these aren't self-evident. There are many different ways to decolonize a colonized people. Um, And because of the unique circumstances of Jewish history, uh, those processes become even more muddled. Um, And so it becomes easy to kind of latch on to uh, say, a more external, dare I say, superficial aspect of decolonization uh, in the form of, say, uh, an ancestral garment, like a piece of clothing which our ancestors wore. And as a result of uh, colonial circumstances, uh, oppressive imperial circumstances, we had to, uh, we had to lose, and now we have the opportunity to to bring it back. Um, but uh, as other people in the space have rightly pointed out, right, if some, anything superficial uh, in the process of decolonization, has to be accompanied by a more meaningful um, and complex process of uh, decolonizing the indigenous mind, decolonizing the indigenous worldview. Because, you know, before it's expressed in the way that we dress and the foods that we eat, it's expressed in the the oppression of our indigenous ideas and our indigenous culture. So I think that, you know, we have to start uh, shifting the conversation uh, amongst those that work in the space uh, and, and, you know, and, and bring these ideas more to social media where these ideas can get more uh, of uh, uh, mass appeal, uh, we need to shift the conversation to talking about how, what does this look like in terms of uh, the ideas that we teach, the way that we educate, the way that our society functions, um, on the level of our diet, on the level of our economics, uh, spirituality. I mean, it's an, entire, it's an all-encompassing process. Um, and some people will connect to different aspects of it, but we need to start having a more nuanced and full conversation of what it looks like to be uh, a Jew that's fighting for the decolonization of, the, of our people.
0: Right. So that's really the question, because, you know, on the one hand, and, and I definitely feel this tension internally, you know, when we started, I, I was part of a group that probably, I guess, around, I'd say 17 years ago, uh, started pushing this idea of Jews as an indigenous people. Um, again, it's not a new idea. This is how, like you said, this is how we all felt. This is certainly how I felt, you know, my journey, you know, even my beginning to celebrate Shabbat over 20 years ago, or where tzitzit, or, you know, which I actually did before kippah, or wrapped uh, tefillin in the morning. For me, there was no sense of becoming religious. That's not what I was doing. I really experienced myself as decolonizing. That was the way I understood it at the time. But when I tried to share that with other people, they just kind of looked at me funny. They didn't understand what I was talking about, you know, because it had been framed for so long as no, like, chuva is becoming religious, not decolonizing, not returning to yourself, right? Even though I would say that the uh, writings of our ancestors and our prophets and sages on this topic is a lot closer to what we understand today to be decolonization than becoming religious. Uh, but I remember that you know it was a hard it was a hard idea for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And I even remember you know in 2015, our delegation to the World Zionist Congress pushed a resolution declaring the Jewish people indigenous to the land of Israel. Now that passed by 51%, 51% of delegates, voting delegates to the World Zionist Congress were able to say, yes, the Jewish people are indigenous to the land of Israel. That's crazy to me, Um, you know, because that should be such a no brainer. But what I think often gets in the way and what might have influenced some of the people who voted against is the concern that this notion of Jewish indigeneity is not coming from a genuine place, but actually coming as some kind of, you know, new Hasbara weapon coming as an argument for why Israel's right and Palestinians are wrong, or a justification for the further oppression of Palestinians. Whereas I think in reality, the notion of Jewish indigeneity should be pushing us, A, to indigenize, you know, to want to be part of the region that we're actually meant to be a part of uh, before we were displaced from here. And now that we're back, we shouldn't see ourselves as an outpost of Western civilization, but rather as an organic part of the Semitic region. Um, And also to feel solidarity with other indigenous peoples, including Palestinians, but not only, Uh, and also to really return to the ways of our ancestors in a way that makes sense. Again, I'm not talking about pre-colonial mind. I'm talking about returning to the ways of our people, as that would make sense in the context of the 21st century. You know, like, uh, again, like, you know, decolonization. uh, We have to be careful of it being caricaturized. And I think that's part of uh, the discourse surrounding the Sudra. Like, I agree. The Sudra is something that our ancestors wore on their heads. It probably didn't have any writing on it or unique patterns. It was probably just a solid piece of cloth. But yes, that makes sense given the climate, given the conditions of the region, um, that all peoples of this region covered up to protect ourselves from the sun. Um, A lot of Israel's critics like to point out the high rates of skin cancer in this country as some kind of argument for the Jewish people being foreign to the region or being alien here, uh, like sunburnt Frenchmen in Algeria or something. Uh, But in reality, I think the problem is that so many Israelis are just not covering up in the way that the indigenous peoples of this region tend to cover up. And that might be part of decolonization. But I think that um, this tension between entering into the conversation seriously in a way that people who are um, engaged in this kind of work have pursued high degrees in post colonial studies can recognize and understand as serious. There's like, on the one hand, there's that, which I think we try to achieve a division movement for those who don't know. The Vision Movement offers online programs for like deep conversations about decolonization. Anybody who's interested in taking one of those programs, I'd suggest starting with the ATEED online leadership program, uh, which you can check out at visionmovement.org. Um, the applications are open now, if anybody's interested in applying. Uh, but that, that's a space for deep conversations about Jewish decolonization uh, that would really be on the level of what most people involved in this discourse would recognize as serious. But then there's the other side of this, which I think you, know, you also alluded to, which is more the kind of like, um, we, which looks to me like the corny popularization Jewish indigeneity, decolonization. Uh, Check out the swag. You can get the sweatshirt for $49.99 or like the sudra for $29.99. Like the commodification of a lot of these items. It it just seems very like sound bitey. It feels like Hasbara a lot of the time. It doesn't feel like a serious conversation. But I know, I know that just given the conditions of the Jewish people today, a lot of young, Jews who are self-identifying as Zionists who do want to be involved in Jewish liberation on some uh, level—it's the only way they can hear it. So I'm constantly, you know, internally, I'm constantly experiencing this tension between the need to like keep the discourse at a high intellectual level that is satisfying to the type of people that I guess I work with, and even those who are maybe even anti-Israel but understand concepts of indigeneity, uh, post-colonial theory, and can even start to understand our story if framed properly within that context. But the danger of the other side, the danger of the popularization or the husbandization of, or, or the weaponization of Jewish indigeneity and decolonization as some kind of pro-Israel talking point actually creates barriers for the more educated Jews and even non-Jews out there to be able to really recognize our story through this lens?
1: Yeah, I think first uh, it's important to state that we should be counting our blessings, right? We need to be well aware of the risks and the pitfalls uh, that we're currently facing and that we're going to face going forward. But we also need to be very aware that we're in a much better place right now than we were in 2015, right? When this idea was very controversial. And one of the main reasons why it was controversial, and I'm sure you you know this uh, better than most people do, is that a lot of people, when they heard us describe the Jewish people as an indigenous collective to Judea, uh, they understood that as a critique of the westernization of Jewish identity, right? And, and that was something that a lot of people in the space of what it means to be pro-Israel or Zionist were like, OK, yeah, we self-identify as a people that comes from this region and that maintained that identity for thousands of years and have come back collectively to this land. Uh, but, you know, in returning, that doesn't mean that we need to return in any psychological, uh, spiritual or material way. Right. We can continue to kind of be who we became in the diaspora in the land in which our ancestors came from. And this was very clearly a rejection of that notion, right? It was a statement that in returning to the land in the revolution uh, of Jewish liberation, we have a process that we need to undergo in this land that we have not we have not reached to the metaphorical promised land. We might be here physically, but there's a long ways to go until we can say effectively that we have redeemed the Jewish people of the, the curses of exile, uh, of empire and of colonization. Um, And, you know, but from 2015 until now, that idea has basically been adopted into the mainstream of the space and along with it, uh, the pitfalls that come uh, alongside it. And we're talking right now about how we can overcome uh, these issues and bring us back to a more meaningful discourse Uh, and how we can uh, effectively decolonize our identity. Um, And I would say that we need to utilize some of the things that we connect to less, for example, social media, for example, commodification, uh, in effectively bringing people back to a more meaningful uh, dialogue. Um, If people want to identify as decolonized Judean, then let them do that, but let's bring them those ideas or those products along with a meaningful discussion about what it actually means, right? You don't become decolonized by purchasing something. You become you become closer to decolonization because I don't think that there's actually like a full, uh, you know, end of the road. You know, we're completely decolonized uh, state. Uh, but you become closer to that goal by doing the very difficult work of questioning the assumptions of two metastructures that the jewish people are dealing with and this is part of the reason why our decolonization is so complex number one that's western domination um, which is more let's say people feel more comfortable talking about it in this space and number two uh and that's pan-arab domination which people feel a little bit less uh comfortable talking about because we have two imperial superstructures that the state of israel is kind of going directly against by its mere existence number one it's the idea that the, the West dictates uh, who lives and who dies. And number two, it's that the Arab empire in the Middle East and North Africa dictates who lives and who dies. Um, and we're constantly dealing with both of that. So we need to be also be careful um, as we begin to decolonize aspects of our identity, whether it's uh, our language, um, our economic structures, agriculture, um, you know, the way that we engage in uh, geopolitics, uh, we need to be wary of saying, "Okay, the way our ancestors uh, operated is just the way that the Arab world operates," and that's not true, right? We're a unique Semitic civilization, um, and and the rise of the the Arab Empire in the Middle East and North Africa uh, meant the destruction of many other indigenous civilizations of this region, Um, a minority of whom uh, still uh, exist to this day in a kind of marginalized uh, way of life. Um, And so we need to be looking at what that means in terms of our relationship to the other indigenous peoples of the Middle East who are fighting for uh, decolonization as well. So we, you and
0: I probably have very deep disagreements on the subject of pan-Arabism. I think it's really worth bringing you back for another episode. Uh, I personally don't see pan-Arabism as a threat to our liberation. Certainly not today. Um, I'm not even sure there is such a thing as pan-Arabism today. Um, I do believe it's in our interest to unite the Semitic region um, as a kind of anti-imperialist collective, and that's something that the Lehi actually tried to do in the late 1940s. That was part of the platform of the Lohamim, the Fighters Party. You know, that was like the Lehi party that went into Knesset um this idea of unifying the entire semitic region and keeping it neutral in the cold war Uh, but again we might have different definitions of you know what colonialism is uh what imperialism is what empire is and its relationship to capitalism uh and i think that might be worth bringing you back on for another episode because those are really Those are really complicated conversations that need to be had on a very deep level. Uh, But I I will say that I think, you know, with all this going on and with this friction that uh, I see and feel around the discourse itself, like how serious should the discourse be, how academic should it be? I guess you have, uh, you know, one side of the spectrum, I'd say, is the vision movement that's trying to have these conversations at a very high level academic level and then you have social media influencers who are just kind of like watering it down and maybe by necessity. I really do see you as somebody who constantly tries to strike the correct balance. I see you as somebody who's using the tools of social media much better than I am, uh, much better than most people at Vision. Uh, while at the same time trying to raise the intellectual level of the discourse. So I really do admire that. Whether you're successful or not is a better question, but even if it's a failure, I admire the attempt, and I'd like to see it succeed. Like, I want to see what you're doing succeed, because I do think that ultimately, you know, watering down some of these ideas for social media might be the only way to reach a lot of young people, especially young Jews uh, who need to be reached, but again, you know, as I said, I don't like the intellectual level being watered down too much because then it just becomes hard for serious people to take it seriously.
1: And I really appreciate that. I just want to clarify one point that I do think I need to come back to have a more kind of robust discussion on panarabism Arabism and the relationship between that and the concepts of empire and colonialism. Uh, but i will say, i do want to clarify that i don't see the palestinian arabs as the representation of pan-arabism uh in the middle east i think that their, their identity is far more complex and in answering these questions about uh the relationship between colonialism uh westernization pan-arabism palestinian identity israeli identity we're going to have a much clearer idea of what the future is going to look like in which we're going to have a more broader jewish arab uh israeli palestinian partnership uh, in creating the type of reality that we want to see uh in this land and in the broader region
0: right now that's very well said one last point i'll make is that uh, you've used the term judean a few times in the course of this episode you know i would like to see the term judean uh, be limited to those of us who live in judea i think today there's a terrible word that's used uh settler you know i think it's a it's an awful term that uh, we get hit with a lot we're not settlers but unfortunately sometimes we behave like we are so i'm i'm trying you know one of the projects that i'm engaged in is trying to live in judea live in the west bank um as a jew fully without being a settler and i think that's an important project and and i think the word judean would be a good word to describe those of us who are actively trying to do that, the more that I feel the word Judean becomes, I don't want to say co-opted, but certainly taken and used to just like become a synonym for Jew. um, I think the more that happens and you know, you have Jews in the United States, Jews in Canada, Jews in England who are all calling themselves Judean without living in Judea. um, I think that kind of prevents us from actually creating a clear definition and saying, no, like a Judean is a Jew living in Judea, uh, perhaps also Samaria. Um, And without that word being available to us, we just kind of have to, you know, at best I think we can say West Bank Jew, uh, which is preferable to settler, but obviously Judean would be much more accurate and would connote indigeneity. You know, it's funny that actually that idea was actually first proposed by J Street. J Street wanted to stop calling us settlers and start calling us Judeans uh, because from their perspective, and obviously this this exposes that J Street was operating psychologically within a very Zionist paradigm, settler is a good word and Judean is a bad word. Judean um, bringing up all of the trauma of the uh, zealot revolt against the Roman Empire you know, Judeans being those irresponsible freedom fighters who ended up, you know, burning the food and and causing the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, At least that's how J Street saw it. So uh, when I saw that, this is going back almost 20 years, I said, hey, wait a minute, that is who we are. Like, we should be calling ourselves Judeans Uh, because unlike the word settler, which connotes uh, colonial presence, uh, Judean infers indigeneity. It's kind of like in Hebrew the words mit nachel versus mityashev. For some reason mityashev is a positive word in Israeli society, but mit nachel is negative whereas mit nachel actually infers indigeneity with like nahala whereas mityashev is actually like the word used for like the old settlers. You know, we have to acknowledge Zionism used a lot of settler colonial tactics, a lot of settler colonial tools which Like nationalism, European nationalism, it was what was available at the time, uh, and it seemed to have been successful. I think now we're in a position where we can do better and uh, decolonize, which obviously includes dismantling the colonial features of Zionism in the state of Israel.
1: I think what you're talking about right now is a very kind of advanced understanding of uh, Jewish identity in the context of a robust process of decolonization. I think that, you know, moving from the word Jew to Judean uh, plays a very meaningful uh, role in bringing people in the diaspora, especially out of the space of thinking of themselves as Americans with a Jewish religion, uh, into more of the space of saying, oh, I'm a member of a unique civilization that comes from this corner of the Middle East. Um, But I think that as we get closer to a more uh, rooted understanding of who we are according to our own sources, according to our own ancestral understanding in a modern context, I think we should move more to kind of a regional identity, um, which I, and I frankly, I think that the idea of a Jew living in Samaria is more like a Samarian as opposed to a Judean in my view. Um, And I think that uh, when we're talking about our people at home and abroad, we should be uh, returning back to our original uh, identity, uh, historically, and that's Hebrew. And that kind of gets rid of all of the uh, um, ambiguity about where we come from, uh, and who we are uh, uh, ethnically, culturally, spiritually, etc.
0: I'd correct you there. I would say the best word is actually Israeli. Um, because the Israelis, meaning the Israelim, the children of Israel, the Bene Israel, are actually a radical offshoot of a broader hebrew civilization maybe that's a topic we can return to in another episode yeah
1: i 100 100 agree with that i would just say that you know when you said about that you that you think that you should limit the term judean to those living in judea it reminded me of a broader uh conversation that's often had in israeli society that says you know when israeli does yerida when he leaves the land of israel he's no longer israeli right and so it's like we have this almost modern concept which is very similar to the one that you're hinting towards Um, but i think that it's important to make to immediately attach us at the root to the broader hebrew civilization that the israelite civilization sprung out of uh in order for us to recenter us back to our philosophy uh folkways uh etc um, but I definitely, I totally agree that the Israelites or Israeli is the radical offshoot of the of our you know Aboriginal Hebrew civilization.
0: And within the context of Israelis making Irida and living, let's say, in the United States, I think they're experienced by non-Jews and even by other Jews as something very distinct from the Jewish populations of those countries, because Israelis are essentially Jews from the land of the Jews as opposed to diaspora Jews who've been severed from their homeland and national framework for almost 2,000 years. So uh, an Israeli will come across as much more assertive, much more aggressive, often much more offensive than uh, a diaspora Jew when engaging with other peoples, you know, in Los Angeles or New York or wherever.
1: Absolutely. That was, that was a lot of my experience uh, growing up in the, the US, kind of to bring us back to where we started this conversation. Um, you know when i was uh, on college campuses as a student uh, in the states i often found myself going uh, when the options were american jews uh, in the specific uh, very uh, assimilated corner of the us uh, in which i was living uh, i found myself uh, connecting at a much more fundamental level with uh, palestinian arabs than i did with uh, with american jews and that was because of my very Eretz Israeli, land of Israel, uh, upbringing and culture that I was raised with in my home. Um, and my Palestinian counterparts on campus and uh, that you know became some of my best friends at that time period, uh, they identified that in me. Right. And so I think that uh, I, I couldn't agree more with the I, the notion that Israeli is something different, is something different than I would say something uh, much older, you know, in a sense.
0: Right. Um, OK. OK. Yamiao Denzig, really a pleasure to have you on. Clearly, we're going to have to bring you back a couple of times to go deeper into some of the topics we only really scratched the surface of. Tell listeners where they can find
1: you. So everybody can follow me at that underscore Semite on Instagram uh, and the same thing on TikTok. Wow, TikTok. I, I'm, uh, I'm on the border between what's acceptable uh, to be on TikTok and what's not. But, uh, you know, I, I put a lot of my content in Arabic out there.
0: Yeah, I think I drew the line between Instagram and TikTok for myself. I'm on Instagram, not on TikTok. uh, And whenever I visit Facebook, it just feels dead.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But, you know, we have to, uh, we got to adapt. But as long as we adapt and we don't forget who we are in the process.
0: Right. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. Look forward to having you on again in the near future. Clearly, we have a lot more to talk about. Thanks for having me. This is Yudah Cohen, Vision Movement vision magazine and you're listening to the next stage podcast anyone interested in checking out the show notes for this episode can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 83